The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and, and the, the heinous, heinous crimes, crimes that changed them, them forever. forever. So this is our second episode this week, but we needed to make up for our hiatus. So we feel bad. Here we are. <laughs> this week's story is the Kansas City Predator, the victims of John Edward Robinson. So another serial killer. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, not awesome for the people, but awesome. You guys ready to jump in? You ready, Chris? Aye, aye, Captain. All right. John Edward Robinson was born December 27th, 1943 in Cicero, Illinois. John was one of five children born to an alcoholic father and an authoritarian mother. Sounds like a great combination. Oh, yeah. As a child, John became an Eagle Scout he actually traveled with the Eagle Scouts to London and performed before Queen Elizabeth II. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And he even met Judy Garland and memorialized that meeting with a picture where she's kissing him on the cheek. That's kind of cool. How cool would it be to have that picture? Yeah. Of Judy Garland kissing a little boy on the cheek who grows up to be a serial killer right like let's kind of like well he's not a little boy at that point he's 18 eagle scouts are that's the highest rank so you're yeah he was a teenager but let can we talk about the fact that this is like our third or fourth eagle scout Mm -hmm. that we've seen that is a serial like and it's not just like murderer like serial killer yep it's kind of like, creepy, isn't it? Like, maybe the Boy Scouts are teaching way too much survival training. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of creepy. I, I kind of want to do a deep dive now and see how many Eagle Scouts have, have become. Well, that's your homework for next week. That'll be my homework for next week. Uh, at one point, John was enrolled in a preparatory school for aspiring priests. Really? Yeah. God, I mean, so, like, I got maybe the whole authoritarian with his mom and everything maybe that's like me i god just kind of seeing like the past right and the upbringing like maybe that's the reason why the serial killer in him came out i don't know it's kind of creepy but it's weird to think that he was going through like a seminary type school to go yeah like from the outside he looks like he's a squeaky clean all-american boy right it sounds like somebody i want my daughter to date right besides him being a priest and all but there was another side to john he was actually kicked out of his prep school due to disciplinary infractions. After he became an adult, he worked as an x-ray technician, and he married a woman named Nancy. The couple went on to have four children by 1971, and they look like your all-American family. God, can you imagine that, having to be an x-ray tech without having to go to school to be an x-ray tech? Right. Like... Here, here's this thing. We're just going to, like, I, I don't know. I just find it so odd, you know, growing up in the, this day and age, or growing up in this day and age. God. Being this in this day and age, you know, like. Where he you makes ha- us sound so old. We are fucking old. <laughs> Not as old as, like, a lot of people, but 
not as old as John. And even though he had a wife and four kids and what appeared to be the all-American family, he had numerous affairs. He was very charismatic. Wow. Very. We went from Eagle Scout and almost a priest to just breaking all them damn commandments, huh? Yep. In 1969, he began working for Dr. Wallace Graham in Kansas City, which I think think they said was Harry Truman's personal doctor. It was one of the president's personal doctors. I, no, I just don't know if I have that right. I'm sorry. I don't know the personal physicians of every U.S. president. No, I'm just trying to make sure the timeline is right. That would be about the time. I'm pretty sure it was Truman. Um, and that was like a prestigious job, but he was a very sociable guy. And, and you know, Dr. Graham really liked him. But he ended up losing that job. You want to guess why? Adultery? He embezzled $33,000. Holy shit. In, in like the early 70s. So, so that's like a couple hundred grand. Yeah. Or at least a hundred grand mm -hmm. in today's... Holy shit. So he was arrested. Wow. Do you want to know what his sentence was? A slap on the wrist because he was a, almost a priest and an Eagle Scout. Three years probation. A slap on the wrist. Pretty much. God, okay, so I'm just going to start counting commandments that he's broken so far. So far, that's two. John was later found to be embezzling from yet another employer, and so his probation was extended. Not sent how to jail. Fuck, how the Probation fuck? <laughs> extended. How the, like, isn't that the point of probation? It's like, hey, you got caught doing this. We're going to give you some time to think about it. Don't do it again. Right. Not be like, oh, hey, you got caught doing it again? We'll think about it some more. Yep. How much did he embezzle did you, from this um, one? Did it this say? one I don't have an amount for. But still, like, you're talking about some serious money at this point. Yeah. In 1975, he was arrested yet again. This time he was charged with securities fraud and mail fraud after phony, uh, forming a phony medical consulting company. And so Jesus. fraud again. Like, wow. Like, you just totally went off the... Beaten, like I know I've beaten this like a dead horse already, but shit. His sentence this time, extended probation, Ho no jail you, time. Are you fucking kidding me? No. Like, how the hell do you get another extended probation time with that? Like, holy hell. Yeah. After completing his probation, he was arrested yet again for embezzlement and check forgery. And this time, he actually had to serve some time. Do you want to guess how much? Six months. 60 days. Fucking hell. 60 so, days. So he's this is his third count of embellish, or embezzling. Mm-hmm. And then also the prior forgery and securities fraud. Yep. And all he's going to serve is six or 60 days. Yep. Motherfucker. Like, yeah. Throughout the 70s, John served as a scoutmaster a baseball coach, and a Sunday school teacher. What the... Okay, whatever. <laughs> Just keep it like, this story is going up and down so fucking much already. He was named Man of the Year by a local charitable organization, but it was later determined that he had actually forged his nomination <laughs> and recommendation letters. <laughs> so the whole thing was bogus. <laughs> And then he threw himself a, a ceremony and celebration. Oh, my God. 
like you're cheating out uh, you're cheating to become man of the year oh my god <laughs> yep <laughs> chris is not okay right now oh my gosh <laughs> go <laughs> after he was released from his 60 days in jail John formed a fraudulent hydroponics business and stole $25,000 from his friend under the guise of an investment. Oh, my. Now, this is sad. His friend invested this money because John promised him a quick return and he needed the money quickly because his wife was dying and he needed to pay for her health care. That's fucked up. Yeah. What a piece of shit. Like, uh, I could right off and laugh at all the other things but like you're taking money from a dying person right and he never saw anything any return on that investment john was clearly a terrible person um but the depths of his depravity had not yet been realized in 1984 john established two more fraudulent companies and he hired 19 year old paula godfrey to work for these companies Paula told her friends and family that John was sending her away for training. They never heard from her again. Paula Godfrey was born June 19th, 1965. She was an accomplished figure skater. She had a petite frame with brown hair and brown eyes. She accepted the position with John, eager to start what she believed to be a promising career. After not hearing from Paula, though, her family filed a missing persons report. John was questioned, but denied knowing Paula's whereabouts. Several days later, her parents received a typed letter that stated she was safe, but did not want any contact with her family. At this point, the detectives concluded the investigation, believing she had left on her own free will and as an adult. Jesus Christ. In 1985, John, using the last name Osborne, met Lisa Stasi and her four-month-old daughter, Tiffany. Lisa was born April 11, 1965, in Huntsville, Alabama. When she was 18, she became pregnant, and she married the father of her baby, and they relocated to the Kansas City area after Tiffany was born in 1985. Lisa's marriage began to fail, and she was actually staying at a women's shelter when she was connected with the man she knew as John Osborne, who said that he ran a local outreach program and he wanted to help the sing- now single mother. And so he did. He told her that he would get her an apartment, a job, and free daycare for Tiffany. She would have to move to Chicago, though. Upon meeting John, Lisa called her mother in tears and she said that she was being asked to sign something and she was afraid that they were going to take her baby away. Her mother told her not to sign anything, but Lisa signed several pages of blank stationery under pressure from John. She was never seen again after that. Typed letters were sent to Lisa's family with her signature at the bottom. Jesus. But they doubted the authenticity because Lisa didn't know how to type. So her family's like, no, something's just not right. 
And the family began a long and painful search for Lisa and her daughter, Tiffany. And the thing is, is like, again, she was an adult. And so did the investigation in the beginning get the coverage it needed? I, I can't say that it did or didn't. Probably didn't. Shortly after the disappearance of Lisa and Tiffany Stasi, John approached his brother and sister-in-law who were having fertility problems. He explained that he knew a woman who had recently committed suicide and left behind an orphaned baby girl. Oh, fuck. He arranged the adoption in exchange for $5,500 for legal fees. Jesus Christ. He then delivered a young baby girl to his brother and sister-in-law, and they named her Heather. Catherine Clampett was born May 29, 1960, in Korea. She was adopted by American parents and grew up in Texas. In 1987, Catherine left her child with family to pursue a job opportunity she had heard about in Kansas City. She was hired by John Robinson with the promise of a lucrative job that included extensive travel and a brand new wardrobe. She was never seen again. In 1987, John finally went to prison prison. He was convicted on multiple fraud charges and parole violations. He was sent to Western Missouri Correctional Facility to serve his sentence from 1987 to 1991. During this time, John met 49-year-old Beverly Bonner, who worked as the prison librarian and was married to the prison doctor. When John was released, Beverly quickly quit her job and left her husband and went to Kansas City with John. Jesus Christ. Right? What kind of drawing charisma does this man have? Right? She said she was going to work for him, but her family never heard from her again. However... Her alimony checks were being sent to Kansas City, and someone, at least, was continuing to cash those, leading authorities to believe that she just wanted to be left with John and leave behind her old life. Jesus Christ. Which, I mean, on the surface is plausible. She right. just up and left her job and her husband, you know. But how many women have been connected with this man already that have just been, they don't never heard from again? Right. By the early 1990s, four women and a baby were missing and linked to John Edward Robinson. However, there was no evidence to prove any wrongdoing. John explained the disappearances away as traveling or the women's choices to leave behind their family. Then John discovered the Internet. So here we go. It's the early 90s. Their chat rooms are alive. Yeah, and alive with a bunch of weirdos. So John would later be known as the first internet serial killer, although obviously it started before then. Using the chat room name Slave Master, John was a frequent correspondent in online chat rooms geared towards the BDSM lifestyle. He sought women who enjoyed being a submissive partner, and that's where he met Sheila Faith. Sheila Faith was born February 12th, 1949 in Texas. She was the mother of a teenage daughter named Debbie. 
Debbie was born in 1978 and had suffered from spina bifida. Because of her medical condition, Debbie was in a wheelchair. And, you know, medical bills, they add up quite a bit. Uh, Whenever Sheila met John, she was living in California with her daughter. John promised her a job and agreed to cover all of Debbie's medical expenses if Sheila would relocate to Kansas City. Upon her arrival, Sheila and Debbie disappeared. However, Sheila's pension checks continued to be cashed for several years. Holy fuck. Yep. In 1999, John met Isabella Lewicka in a BDSM chat room. Isabella was born April 11th, 1978 in Poland. Her family immigrated to the United States and settled in Indiana. In 1999, Isabella was a sophomore at Purdue University. She began a bondage relationship with John Robinson. She relocated to Kansas City to be closer to John. John bought her an engagement ring, although he was still married to Nancy. And they even went to the courthouse to file for a marriage license. And some people say that Isabella believed they were married, Um, And she told her family that she was married, but she never told them her husband's name. Even a more interesting, I guess, um, Isabella signed a lengthy contract with John Robinson, basically agreeing to be his submissive in every single way, including over her money, her bank accounts, everything. That's taken it a little bit too far. Right. Then she disappeared. Of course. John told friends in Kansas that Isabella was deported after getting caught with marijuana. Also in 1999, licensed practical nurse Suzette Troughton moved from Michigan to Kansas City to live with John after meeting him in a BDSM chat room. She met him online and she wanted to be his submissive slave and he promised they would travel the world together. Suzette was never seen again. Suzette's mother received several type letters from Suzette in which she described her travels with John, but the problem was, you know, she would write this letter and say she was in Paris or wherever, but it was all postmarked Kansas City. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So her mother was very suspicious. She called um, John and she said, you know, I don't think these letters are from Suzette because Suzette makes lots of grammar mistakes and these letters are like perfectly polished and put together it just didn't seem right and john told her that suzette ran off with another man after stealing his money and her family didn't believe it though right and at this point investigators have connected the dots between all of these missing women and john edward robinson but no evidence He did not allow them to search property or anything like that, and they didn't have sufficient evidence to get a search warrant. That changed in June of 2000. Damn, that's a big jump in time frame. The last two women were 1999. Oh, never mind. But, like, he's been at this for two decades. Yeah, 20 years. You know, at least that we know of. In June of 2000, a woman filed charges against John for battery, 
another woman filed charges against him for stealing her sex toys. I can't make this shit up. I mean, okay. So since he's accused of theft of sex toys, they were able to get a search warrant for his properties to look for these toys. With these complaints, he was arrested for the theft and assault and his properties were searched. While searching Robinson's farm in, I cannot pronounce this. I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to say Lysinja, Kansas. Um, police discovered two decaying bodies in 85-pound chemical drums. Jesus Christ. The bodies were identified through DNA as Suzette Troughton and Isabella Lewicka, the lady from Poland and the lady yeah. from Michigan. In his storage unit on the Missouri side of the river, detectives found three more drums containing three more bodies. Holy fuck. The bodies were positively identified as Beverly Bonner, the prison librarian, Sheila Faith, the lady from California, and Debbie Faith, her 16-year-old daughter. Autopsies on all five women determined the cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the head. Robinson Jesus. was charged for the murders of Troughton and Lewicka in Kansas and the other three in Missouri. Yeah. Upon his arrest, authorities announced that they had found Tiffany Stasi, and she was alive. Most people were surprised and thought the little girl was dead. She was living with an adoptive family in the Midwest, but no other details were released at first. It was later made public that Tiffany Stasi was Heather Robinson, John's niece. John had arranged the adoption of Heather by his brother and sister-in-law in 1985. DNA confirmed her identity. Fucking hell. Authorities said, quote, It is our belief that this adoptive family had no knowledge of any criminal activity relating to the adoption of baby Tiffany. God, can you... what? What kind of fucking mind fuck would that be mm-hmm. to know that this daughter that you adopted in good faith was really the victim of kidnapping and a murder? Right. And, you know, authorities said that the family believed the adoptive, they were the legal adoptive parents, although it turns out the adoption was not legal, of course. And his brother and sister in law were just another victim. Now, at the time, Heather, who she still goes by Heather, uh, was 16 years old. She didn't even know she was adopted. So not only did, upon finding out your uncle is a serial killer, you're adopted, and it's not even a legal adoption because you were the child of one of your uncle's victims. Jesus Christ. That's a lot to process at 16 years old. Yeah. That'd be a mind fucking a half. Yeah. In later interviews, Heather spoke of the man she believed to be her Uncle John. She said, quote, He always gave me this really weird, off-putting feeling in the pit of my stomach. It's like walking down a dark alley in the middle of the night while you know someone is behind you. End quote. Jesus Christ. So her intuition told her something wasn't quite right yeah. about her uncle. With Evidence of the illegal adoption of Tiffany, John was charged with the murder of Lisa Stasi, although her remains were not found. 
He was also charged with kidnapping. I mean, what? They've got five bodies at this point? Five bodies, yeah. Which, like, like how, how fucked up in the head do you have to be to keep bodies right. in drums in a storage unit at no less? Like, right. Like, this is a trophy. Right. In 2002... John was found guilty on three counts of murder in Kansas after one of the longest trials in state history. For the murders of Suzette Troughton and Isabella Lewicka, John received the death penalty. He was not given the death penalty for Lisa Stasi because in 1985, Kansas did not have the death penalty. It had not been reinstated yet. So he was given a life sentence for the murder of Lisa Stasi. He still faced murder charges in Missouri, though, and Missouri, as we know, aggressively seeks the death penalty. John wanted a plea deal, which the prosecutor said would be contingent upon him leading authorities to the bodies of Lisa Stasi, Paula Godfrey, and Miss Clampett. John admitted to these murders, admitted that he committed them, but refused to lead authorities to their remains. I wonder why. Yeah. He's just a piece of shit. That's my opinion. I know that, but... You're going to admit to it, so... And we already know that. I mean, fucking hell. Under pressure, though, the prosecutor came to an agreement to allow John to enter a guilty plea for the murders of Godfrey, Clampett, Bonner, Sheila, and Debbie Faith. So five murder charges in Missouri. And the bad thing was because Kansas City is part in Missouri and part in Kansas and some of the bodies were found in Kansas and some were found in Missouri. We don't really know where the crime was committed, which was one of the reasons the state's attorney's office finally decided to go ahead and make a plea with him because they would have had to prove those happened in Missouri. Right. You know, it was going to be hard. So. They did make a deal with him and he pleaded guilty to all five murders and was given life without the possibility of parole times five. So five lives without the possibility of parole. He did not show any remorse when he made his plea in court. Right. And he didn't take specific responsibility, however, either. He just said there was enough evidence to convict him. Jesus Christ, though. In 2005, John's wife divorced him after 41 years of marriage. I would hope so. Yeah. After your husband goes to jail for being a serial killer. John's convictions for Lisa Stasi and Suzette Troughton were vacated by the Kansas Supreme Court in 2015. I wonder why. Based upon technicalities. That's all I found. So I don't know specifically what those technicalities were, but the Supreme Court in Kansas did uphold the conviction for Isabella Lewicka and her death sentence for that crime. And they said that was the one of the rare times that the Kansas Supreme Court upheld a death sentence. So he remains on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. Although he's continuing to appeal his death sentence and conviction, um, even nine months ago, he was still going, had a court date to appeal this conviction. Jesus Christ. Um, If for some reason he ever is able to get released, 
he will face five life sentences in Missouri. So, I mean, he's never going to be free. Right. I just hope Kansas actually gets to go forward with the execution. Yeah. I mean, I guess I do. I don't know. You know how I feel about yep. the death penalty. I go back and forth. But I wouldn't be sad. Nope. And this is one of those ones where I'm pretty sure he deserves it. And the problem is, is there's a lot of gaps in his, you know, 30, 40 years that he's been an adult where authorities believe there's probably more victims than we even know about. Right. You know, these are just the ones we know. Heather, like I said, she was only 16 when her true identity was revealed. She remained with her adoptive family afterwards. And she said, you know, she remembers her mom and dad being distraught because, first of all, they feared they were going to go to prison because of the illegal adoption, even though they didn't know about it. Right. They were afraid there would be legal consequences for them. And second, they were afraid that her biological family would take her away. And they were petrified. Yeah. Her biological grandmother did form a relationship with her, but said that she was not going to pursue any kind of custody because, you know, they didn't have anything to do with the murder and they had been raising her in a healthy, happy home for 16 years. Right. And that's, and I commend the grandma for doing that, realizing that though the tragedy is shitty, you know, and the situation is shitty, at least they're taking care of her. Right. And this is the only home she's ever known. And they were, by all accounts, good parents. Right. Build that relationship and everything. But, like, I commend her for that. Yeah. Um, Heather's biological father, I I don't have a lot of the details, but he also wanted a relationship. And Heather declined to have that relationship with him. And I think it's probably because, I don't know, this is a speculation, but her mom was at a shelter for women whenever she met john robinson so my thought process on this is he probably isn't the best guy right there probably wasn't a good relationship to begin with right um after she turned 18 heather asked her adoptive parents to legally adopt her and they did so she is um heard the daughter of John's brother and sister-in-law now legally and officially. That's good. She remains committed to finding her biological mother's remains and putting her to rest. That's so sweet and sad. Like in all, all it would take is him to just say, Hey, this is where they're at. Yep. He just won't do it because he's that big of a piece of shit. So, yeah, this is kind of a screwed up serial killer. Um, yeah. I mean, they're all screwed up, but I don't know. The whole thing, like, how do you see this baby, even if they're not that close? There's pictures of them on holidays, though. You see this baby on, you know, this person that's supposedly your niece, and you know good and well what you did. Right. I almost wonder if he kind of kept her as a trophy. Like I'm Possible. gonna get, I'm gonna give her to my brother and sister in law. That way, I can kind of keep my trophy. Right. It's sick. Nope. It is very sick, and that's a hundred percent could be a possibility. And I feel so sorry for his brother and sister in law. Like they wanted a baby so bad, they thought they had one. 
They well, raised they, her till they she do was have six. One. They do, but you know? I mean, they raised her till she was sixteen, and then find out not only is she not legally theirs, but but she's... also the the daughter of a victim that your brother killed. Right. So technically, she's a kidnapping victim whose mother was murdered by your brother. Like, holy smokes. That's like the story inside the story that made me interested in this case. Yeah. So, this was the story of the Kansas City Predator. That name pretty much is self-explanatory. Yep. I think he cashed all these women's checks and pensions and stuff. Oh, de- most like, definitely. I think it was financial greed as well as he's just sick. I think Leia's trying to tell us we're about done for today. Yeah. Um, this story, I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Um, you can see the pictures. I have pictures of most of the victims and a few pictures of John on our blog at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. Make sure you like and follow us on Facebook. And we will have a Patreon episode coming soon for you guys. Yep. And until then, we will see you guys later. Bye.